All right, this week we're continuing on in Matthew chapter 13. We're looking at verses 44 through 52. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or scroll on your phones or whatever, whatever you're using. And Jesus is continuing on with parables about the kingdom of heaven that teaches disciples um, about this kingdom they're learning about. And last week we looked at the parable of the weeds and saw that Jesus gave a very clear explanation that there are evil and that there are the righteous and that both of them have a very clear destination where they're heading for eternity. And this week, we're going to see that reiterated in the parable of the net or the parable of the dragnet, as some of you may have learned it. But before we get to that, we're going to be looking at two really short parables uh, that are very similar in nature um, and in their purpose. So we're going to treat those as a pair. And then lastly, Jesus tells his disciples, he gives them uh, this teaching about what a treasure it is to know the full counsel, the full word of God, both Old and New Testaments. So before we get into that, let's pray. Father, we love you. We, we give you thanks for your word, that we can dive into it this morning, that we can dive into it anytime. Um, and we... Lord, want to ask your great blessing, your great leading by your spirit um, through these words, Lord, that um, as we look at, look at your words, that you'd, you'd be the teacher here this morning. We ask that you'd help us to understand about this treasure and this pearl these men found and the great treasure that it was and the great treasure of your kingdom that we now can learn about through these things and through his words. So Lord, please help me speak clearly. Please speak through me. Please open all of our hearts and minds to understand your word, to walk with you in your word and learn from you. And may it be glorifying to you. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard the story of a man named Thomas Beale. Anybody heard of Thomas Beale? I had never heard of him. But in 1816, Thomas Beale and a few of his companions came into a large sum of gold and silver that they found while they were mining in the Rocky Mountains. And hoping to keep it safe for their families, this Thomas Beale and his men, they hid this treasure. And Beale painstakingly wrote a letter that was coded the whole thing was in code form so that no one would actually know what he wrote except for himself and anyone that he gave that information to. Well, he then placed the letter in a box and gave the box to a Virginia innkeeper for safekeeping, housing this letter that was in code that was telling everyone, or telling him, reminding him where this treasure was. The only problem was Beale died before he ever came back for it. So the innkeeper opened the box years later, but no one was ever able to decode the letter. So this treasure is still sitting out there, supposedly, somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, because nobody can understand this letter that Thomas Beale left. Well, the good news for us this morning is that Jesus is going to tell us about a treasure of unmatched value, and he knows the code to it. He holds that securely. So again, turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're looking at verses 44 to 52. 
Now, last week we learned that Jesus has left the crowds, and now the disciples have come back to him for further teaching. So he's speaking to his disciples. So starting at verse 44, we read, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus says, have you understood all these things, speaking to his disciples? And they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So the first point we're going to look at here this morning is that we are to find the joy of belonging to God's priceless kingdom. Find the joy of belonging to God's priceless kingdom. So let's begin with these two short parables that are grouped together. We're going to look at them as a pair. They're very short and they're giving the same message. We first see in verse 44 a man who's in a field and he finds this treasure. And if we look back in antiquity... This situation was not necessarily a rare occurrence. You know, they, they did not have a banking structure like we do. You know, they weren't counting on these electronic numbers, these digital numbers, being able to move $100 from this account to that account. So it wasn't unco uncommon for someone in that day to take something of great value that they owned and bury it in the ground where nobody else would know where it was so it couldn't be stolen. It might be a family heirloom or some sort of currency that they were saving up for a rainy day or to pass down to their loved ones. So this first picture Jesus uses is of a man who comes across this treasure in a field. And he realizes this treasure is so valuable that he would give away everything he has, sell everything he has, in order to buy that field that contains this treasure. And then the second picture we have is Jesus uh, telling us about this merchant who finds this ultimate pearl that he's in search of. And, and back in antiquity, um, these divers would have brought up these pearls, and these merchants would have always been looking for the most valuable pearl they could find. And this merchant finds this exquisite pearl and wants to sell everything just so that he can buy this. So Jesus says these two men, in very similar situations, have found something of such value that they would give anything for it. They quickly realize they've encountered, what they've encountered is of far greater worth than anything they could own. And of course, Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of heaven is like this treasure and this pearl. It's of, it's of such tremendous value that we can't put a number on it. There should be nothing that we wouldn't joyfully give up in order to have it. And so the question normally comes, 
question naturally comes up, what is it that makes this kingdom so wildly valuable? What is it about this kingdom that would cause a man or a woman to come up to it and say, I would give anything to have this? And there's one simple answer. It's because of who the king is. It's because of the life and the renewal that comes with knowing and trusting and loving the king of this kingdom. It comes from knowing that just as these men gave everything to buy this field and this pearl, Christ Jesus gave everything to purchase us back. And just as the man in the field found the treasure and he bought the field in his joy, we're told in Hebrews that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross for us. And so as we learn about the kingdom of heaven in these parables that Jesus is teaching, we're learning from the king himself. And so just like these two men who give everything to buy this treasure and this pearl, we now learn about this kingdom of immeasurable worth from the king himself. And so we're left with a decision to make. Will we cling to the things of this world and grasp so tightly to the structure of this world, the greed, the envy, the lust, the power, that we miss the most valuable possession we could ever have, and that's fellowship and unity with the King of Heaven in this kingdom. I hope you don't mind this morning if I share a little bit of what we've done in youth group um, over the past year or so, because uh, a lot of it lines up very well um, with what we see here in Matthew. And Paul writes about this very thing in the third chapter uh, to the Philippians. And this is uh, Philippians 3, 7 through 9. Paul's talking about how he was willing to pay any price or give up anything to know Christ, to know this king. And so Philippians 3, starting at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul was so overjoyed at knowing Christ that he said he would give up anything to follow him, to know him. And so what Paul's saying here in these two short verses, he uses these phrases just in these two short sentences, look what he says. He says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss. I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Speaking of everything that was standing in the way of him knowing Christ. And all of this for what? He says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We're talking about worth this morning, this treasure, this pearl, this kingdom that's so valuable we can't put it into words. And Paul says the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may be found in him. And so when we find this kingdom of heaven, when we come upon it, when we find the king of heaven, we find our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. We find our very life in him. And that's why this kingdom is so valuable. We find our life in the king who resides over it. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I've come that they may have life, have it abundantly. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. That's why it's so wildly valuable, this kingdom, because of the king that's there. And he not only invites us into this kingdom, but he purchased the entrance for us to get in there. As he took to the cross our sins on his shoulders and purchased us back with his blood. So that we would have this opportunity that these men have here that we're reading about to come upon this kingdom and be able to say with joy, yes, I want that more than anything. This is what Jesus purchased for us, this opportunity to come and find this kingdom with joy and give every part of ourselves to it and be so full of joy at this eternity that we now have with this king. The joy of the kingdom. And then as we move into our second point, Jesus takes a very sharp turn here. A very sharp turn. And he contrasts this great joy upon finding the kingdom and belonging to it. And he contrasts that with those who reject the kingdom. And this is not a pretty picture. Our second point is a warning. It's avoid the devastation of rejecting God's kingdom. Avoid the devastation of rejecting God's kingdom. And we read in verses 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now as we look, as we look at this parable and the boat and the fishermen, this net the fishermen would have been using, it would have been just your basic net and it would have had a couple of floats um, on the top of it and then it would have weights on the bottom of it so that when they cast this net out into the water, the net spreads out into the water and basically creates this wall, catching everything in its path. It would have gathered uh, whatever type, type of fish was in it, that was in its way. Um, it might have even found a few Mountain Dew bottles or something like that. Or maybe a golf club that a golfer threw angrily out into the water. I don't know. But you see the point here. A striking similarity is here with that of the parable of the weeds. And just like that parable where the wheat and the weeds, they grow up to maturity together, and then they're all collected at the same time. Then the wheat is separated and kept in barns, and the weeds are burned. Here we see the good fish and the bad fish all gathered at the same time in the same way. And just as Jesus explained that parable of the weeds, he's going to give an expl explanation for this one as well. He says the righteous and the evil will be separated. And in this parable, he really only describes in detail what happens to the evil. He says the righteous are going to be gathered into a container, or the, the good fish, but then the evil, he gives a, a more detailed explanation. And it's a dreadful thing to think about. He says the evil will be thrown into a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Jesus was absolutely clear in Scripture about hell, and he spoke of it quite often. In Matthew 5, he calls it a place of fire. Chapter 8, he calls it a place of darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, we learn there's no relief. It's eternal. In Matthew 25, we learn the devil and his angels are there. This is a real place, real people, real eternity. Jesus was very clear about this. So this is a call for us to reach out to those in our lives who don't yet know Christ as Lord and say, hey, which camp are you in? Are you in the righteous or in the evil based on this parable? And for that person, when they ask that question, they, say, they might say, am I in the righteous camp or am I in the evil camp? How do I know? So for help with that, we're going to turn over to, to the book of John, chapter 3. As Jesus and Nicodemus are having this conversation about the kingdom of God. And to be clear, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are synonymous terms that Jesus uses. Uh, kingdom of heaven is used more so in Matthew. And if you look in the other gospels, you'll see kingdom of God. Uh, and you can find this in Matthew 19 when Jesus interchangeably uses kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven as he's explaining things to his disciples. So back to Nicodemus here, John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus' answer is quite interesting here because Nicodemus seems like he's fishing for more information. He's saying, you know, he makes this statement to Jesus, but he's kind of like left it open-ended. He wants Jesus to, hey, tell me more about yourself. But Jesus kind of sets that aside here for the moment, and he, he kind of gets down to the nitty-gritty, as we might say. Jesus answered him and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And of course, I would encourage you to read the entirety of chapter 3 in John uh, this week uh, for more context. But the conversation ensues, and then Jesus, we get down to verse 16 and 17. And many of you will know this by heart. Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, but that, but that the world through him might be saved. And so this invitation is open to you this morning. If you've not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's an open door for you to find this joy of the kingdom that we're talking about. And to avoid this absolute devastation that comes on those who reject Christ and his kingdom. So Jesus continues to paint this very clear picture that we're faced with a choice between two kingdoms. The kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of hell. Jesus really doesn't leave any middle ground here in this parable. He says there's the righteous, the evil, and each goes down their particular eternal path. Again, I'm going to 
go to Philippians 3 here with what we're studying with the students at youth group. Paul also makes a very clear distinction about those heading towards glory and those heading towards destruction. He says in chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross, cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. And then Paul contrasts that for the believer, the one who's in Christ. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So he makes the same distinction. We can choose to follow our fleshly desires, follow the system of the world down to destruction, or we can follow Jesus into his kingdom and find citizenship in heaven where he makes everything new. And when we find this kingdom, when we find this king, we're going to want to follow the Lord into deeper understanding of the truth. Follow the Lord into deeper understanding of the truth. This is our third point. So now Jesus finishes up with his parables for the moment, and he gives the disciples one last admonition. We read in verses 51 and 52. He asked them, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So Jesus being the great teacher that he is, the greatest teacher of all time, he's reviewing with his students. He asked them a question, have you understood all these things? Are you smelling what I'm cooking here? He said, and there's a collective yes they give. The disciples, they collectively say yes. We understand what you're saying. And we have to take their word for it here because if you read through the Gospels, you're going to see many times where they didn't quite understand what was going on when Jesus was talking. But at the same time, some of the fishermen or the farmers there present amongst the disciples might have heard these parables about fishnets, about weeds, wheat, fields, and they might be saying, yeah, I get what you're saying. I got it. Then Jesus issues what is an absolute truth statement, but also appears to be an admonition, an encouragement to his disciples. He says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And so as we've learned in Matthew through this study, a scribe was a teacher of the law. He would have been an expert in the Old Testament, particularly in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Now here we have Jesus using this term scribe in terms of those being trained for the kingdom of heaven. Now I want to mention this word trained that we have here um, is also many times discipled having been discipled, and that same Greek word is actually used in the Great Commission, um, if you'd like to look into that further, for disciples that are being sent out to make other disciples. So this kingdom scribe, he's not only going to be able to speak from the Old Testament scriptures, but speak also of the Lord Jesus and this new covenant that he's bringing about that completely fulfills 
the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. So there's a challenge to the disciples here and to us to know the Old Testament thoroughly and to understand how Jesus brings the ultimate fulfillment of it. And this really, as Christians, is something that we need to stay on guard about because there is this idea floating around amongst different circles that we, for whatever reason, don't need the Old Testament any longer, whether it be because, well, Jesus came and gave us a new covenant, we don't need the old one. Or, if you look back to the second century even, a man named Marcion, back in the second century, said that we should not regard the Old Testament as inspired scripture because it supposedly speaks of a different God than what we see in the New Testament. Or you may have heard about a famous pastor here in recent years that was throwing around the phrase unhitching from the Old Testament. Jesus in this passage here is squashing these ideas. He's squashing them. He's calling both the Old, the Old Testament scriptures, and the New, his fulfillment in the New Covenant, which we now know is the New Testament. He's calling them both treasure. And the master of the house that Jesus talks about, the scribe that is trained for the kingdom of heaven, he brings both old and new out together because they belong together. They're both the true word from the same awesome God who teaches us about his unfolding plan. Now, the word treasure here is really interesting and brings a great uh, dimension to what Jesus is saying. In the Greek, this word for treasure is thesauros. Does that sound familiar to any of our English words? Sounds like our English word thesaurus. It's where we, uh, so uh, what is a thesaurus? It's a book that we go to to find the fullest, deepest meaning of a word. And so we're searching out this treasure. He tells his disciples, search out this treasure, this thesaurus. It requires bringing out both the old and the new together to find the fullest, deepest meaning. One of the beautiful things about Scripture is that a child can come to it and understand the gospel story and understand the love of Christ. And at the same time, when we enter the kingdom of heaven, like we've talked about, enter into this joy, we find that we have this opportunity to continue to search deeper and deeper and deeper and find more truths of the Lord and the way that he works, his graciousness to us. And isn't that how it is, studying with the scriptures? Some of you have said this before. Some of you have studied for 80 years, and you're saying the same thing, like the word's deeper and richer to me than it ever has been before. That's how it is with God's kingdom, with who he is. So we take this comprehensive approach, the Old Testament and the New Testament, both absolutely valuable. We see the character of God all through Scripture. The Psalms talk over and over again about God's steadfast love. One of the things that we've been going over with the youth group is God's overarching plan that he's working out so that they can have a greater context of any passage that they're studying. And I don't know if you can, uh, if that slide is available up there, but this is, um, yeah, I don't know if you can see that real well. Um, but we're just going to go through these real quickly. So this is, 
Uh, we took a document published by Answers in Genesis. They call it the seven C's. Um, great thing to look into, and we added to it, but I think it's okay. I think you'll see. Uh, we added two C's to it, but I'm going to run through these real quick, and this is what we're teaching the, uh, the youth group and really falls into what we're talking about, the old and the new treasure of God working all throughout history. So just real quickly, here's what we've been showing them. We have one, creation. God created everything in six days and pronounced it good. We have corruption. Due to Adam and Eve's sin, the world has been corrupted and cursed. Catastrophe. God sent the flood to judge humanity's total wickedness. Confusion. God confused the language of the people at the time of the Tower of Babel. And then one we've added, chosen people, I think that's pretty safe, Israel. God called the nation of Israel together to be his people and to be a light to the world. But they and everyone else could not follow God's law. Christ, God sent his son who would live that perfect life of obedience to the Father that we could not. Cross, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, took our sins to the cross to atone for our sin. Church, another one we've added, again, I think pretty safe. After Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes and the church is formed to spread the gospel of Christ. And completion or consummation, the Lord Jesus will return and make all things new, a new heavens and a new earth. And if anybody would like that, we have plenty of copies available, so just let me know. So ultimately, when Jesus speaks of the old and the new, he's speaking of God's unfolding plan throughout history as written in his word. It's speaking of his faithfulness and his trustworthiness. And the focal point of that plan is the Lord Jesus, the King of Heaven, who's speaking here in Matthew about his own kingdom. So quickly, let's take a look at a few examples of Jesus, what he means when he says this scribe of the kingdom brings out both the old and the new. And so we're going to look to the master teacher himself first in this first example. You might remember when Jesus, just after he had risen from the grave, when he approached two men walking on the road to Emmaus, two disciples, and they were kept from recognizing him. They didn't understand that it was him. And they were downcast because Jesus had been crucified, and they were hoping that he was going to be the one that would redeem Israel. Jesus asked them what they're talking about, and they say to him, Are you the only one who's visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know about the things that have happened in these days? Speaking of the crucifixion. And Jesus, as some see in a hilarious fashion, says, What things? What things do you mean by that? The center point of human history and the, the person who's at the center of that center point asking what things are you talking about? But the point is this. Luke tells us that Jesus begins to teach these two disciples from the Old Testament about how the Messiah had to suffer and then enter his glory. And when we read in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Luke says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus clearly values the old. One more example is Isaiah 53. 
The prophet Isaiah writes, speaking of Jesus at his coming, 700 years later, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I once heard the story of a man who shared this passage with a coworker that he was witnessing to. And this coworker was familiar with church. He he knew about Jesus and you know, but he wasn't a believer. And so this man read this to his coworker and he said, Who who do you think he's talking about there? And he said, Well, he's talking about Jesus, of course. I I know that. And then the man asked his coworker, he said, Well, when do you think that was written? And the guy responded, well, probably right when Jesus was on the earth or probably afterwards sometime. And the guy said, well, good guess, but it was actually written 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. Isaiah 53 is such a great example of the richness that comes with studying the old, as Jesus says, the Old Testament, because then we see the absolute fulfillment of it. This suffering servant when we all like sheep have went our own way, came to be crushed and bruised for us, that our iniquity would be laid on him. And of course, our entire New Testament revolves around this one, this anointed one that came for us. It revolves around his life, his death, his resurrection that had been foretold. The anointed one, the Messiah, a suffering servant that was foretold is the king that we read about here in Matthew. The king telling us about his kingdom. He's the one who by his blood, his death, his resurrection, has purchased our entrance into this priceless kingdom he speaks of. And because of his completed work, because of his completed work, we now have the opportunity just like the man in the field who found the treasure, just like the man who found this priceless pearl, we now, because of him, can come up to this kingdom and proclaim, I have found something that's of far greater worth than anything I could ever imagine. I would give anything to have this. And it's because of what he's purchased for us. So praise be to the Lord Jesus who made the way for us to enter this priceless kingdom with great joy. Seems like we can't get through a sermon recently without mentioning C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. So don't reject it. Enter it with joy. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we thank you for your word and the richness that comes from it, all of it, as Jesus told us. 
Lord, we thank you that you've opened this door for us by your blood, your death, your resurrection. You've opened this door to us to come upon this kingdom and proclaim with joy that we've found everything we've been looking for, everything we could ever want. And that's true, that's true because you are there. You are the one who is our life. And so, Lord, thank you for your word. Help us find joy in your kingdom this week. Help us warn others about the danger of rejecting it. And, Lord, continue to lead us more deeply in your word, I pray. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.